Welcome to the RSP cast, Matt Waldman. It's reunion week. Got Dwayne McFarland joining us week before the NFL draft. Do a little film and data or data and film, however you want to look at it. Peanut butter and jelly. Dwayne, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's always great to, to have you on. Peanut butter and jelly, as long as it's not like peanut butter and avocados, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Man, it's, it's always good to be back on. Anytime I'm on with you is always great. Uh, you know, I love getting together with people that know the film and trying to look at the data with that, whether that's you or Jay Moyer or some of the other folks. Um, obviously, you and I, like we, we've got a long track record together. So looking forward to it. Sure. Absolutely. Now, of course, you can find Dwayne McFarlane at Pro Football Focus. You can find him on Twitter at Dwayne McFarlane. We're going to talk about receivers and backs today. Probably going to lead in with um, players where the, where the data doesn't quite match maybe what I'm seeing on film. And we can talk about some of those differences because what that may explain is there's a specific fit that might really work for that player. Or there's things mm -hmm. that maybe that the film might be missing, or things that the that the data doesn't show in a certain context. We'll look at all. We'll talk about all three of those possibilities. First, I do want to just point out this is something that I've been um, talking about in a lot of podcasts, and I've certainly talked about it here in the past. And that's the um, GoFundMe that I have been sharing um, about John Hodgins, and he is really almost ninety percent of the way there. Um, you can see it right here. I'm gonna. I'll put a link to the show also in in the podcast notes. Um, but you know, John is a 75 year old man who spent nearly 25 years working at a hospital who, who basically was a victim of a home invasion. He and his wife, and for the past three years, he's been trying to get his life back together. Been really in and out of a state of homelessness, which is basically being homeless. Um, and we are, you know, we've been able to get very close to his goal. So I'm hoping we can get. Get him maybe over the top before the draft. That would be that would be pretty nice. Um, you know, I know that he's very grateful for the opportunity to to be able to do the you know get this money so that he can move back closer to his adult daughter who's suffering from mental illness. He's dealing with kidney disease. Get he and his wife and his daughter in kind of a base where that they can settle in and you know get their life in in an, in an order where things aren't just perpetually kind of falling apart, which often happens when you're in a in a financial state like this, uh, you know. And so, um, you know, we appreciate your response. If you've been, you know, if you can just share it, if that's all you can do, that's enough. You you might be able to share, put it in front of the eyes of somebody who will be able to make a donation um, or help out in some other way and be able to contact John. So, um, you know, all that's, um, you know, something that I just wanted to bring up and uh, appreciate those of you that have donated. And uh, at this point, let's go ahead and uh, talk a little shop, Dwayne. You know, we're going to, one of the things that, one of the things that we'll do is let's bring up these wide receivers. And I think, you know, the, the cool thing about, what we have here from Dwayne, you know, in terms of looking at the data is that, you know, he's got tiers with his players and we're, and he's got five players in his first tier, which are Garrett Wilson, Draylon Burks, Jamison Williams, Drake London, Chris Olave. And then he has, you know, tier two, it looks like we have uh, seven players, which includes Sky Moore, George Pickens, Jahan Dotson, Christian Watson, John Mechie, Wandale Robinson, and David Bell. And then there's a tier, there's three in tier three, and Justin Ross, Khalil Shakur, Jalen Tolbert, and tier four has Alec Pierce, Calvin Austin, Romeo Dubs, Kevin Austin Jr., and tier five, 
Kyle Phillips, Javon Hiley, the Coastal Carolina yeah. wonder. And, and and, honestly, you can just delete tier five. Like there's so many below that. Like a bunch of guys, I just stopped. I was like, just because like the model was just showing so such low odds of like them ever hitting unless like draft capital changes. Yeah. Like, okay. So but, we'll uh, end with, I would say, I would say the top four um, are good. And just to give folks a little bit of idea how this works. So yeah. what I did is I've really gone back and look, and this is, so there is a fantasy bend on this. So looking at players and their production over the first three years in the NFL, and what are the traits that most strongly correlated from what they did in college over to what would happen in the NFL. So there's several things there. Um, there's their production. And then there is their measurables, but honestly, on receivers like measurables are it, they hardly matter at all. Like the forty-yard dash, I look for a threshold, but other than that, I really don't care. Like it doesn't it doesn't correlate. It doesn't show any real strength of signal. So it's mostly about um, player age when they're coming out. It's about where we think their expected draft capital is going to go. And for this, I've used I've used grinding the mocks. I actually updated it just before the show. So this is, these are the latest uh, projected mock positions. Um, based on the experts across the industry. I'm just, Brian and Mock is kind of a mix. But what's funny is, historically, looking back at some of these mocks, I didn't realize like how accurate they are whenever you aggregate them. And so they're usually pretty tight. So um, expected draft capital is the largest driver to this model right now. Um, and then uh, college production is next. Then rookie age would be after that. And then there are some new things that I've added that we have over at Pro Football Focus that you don't always find everywhere else. And that's being able to actually look at some of their more efficiency metrics. So I've got career yards per route run, and then I've got their career explosive target rate. So explosive targets would be um, receptions of 15 yards or more. So kind of giving you a hint, trying to give some context to like, you know, how these players may, you know, play a little different, right? You don't, you don't necessarily have to be hyper explosive to really work in the model, but it's definitely an added benefit if you can hit all areas of the field. Beautiful. So let's talk about Traylon Burks and, and get this one right off the bat because <laughs> Traylon Burks, yeah. you know, this is a good example of a guy where the difference in terms of where he's ranked by, I think, the, you know, looking at this as well as what we see a lot of other places and where I have him. And again, you know, this is why I like, you know, for score, Traylon Burks to me is still a guy who can contribute and be in a starting lineup early in his career. That's my score still reflects that. I just happen to think that when I'm looking at players across a spectrum of potential wide receivers and, and where they could fit, not specific to a team, there are, there are a lot more players who I think have more appeal um, to a wider range of systems, um, whereas Burks may need a specific appeal. Now, the thing is, is that we should probably trust, Dwayne, that there's going to be a team that will find a way to make it work with Traylon Burks and will value him highly enough that they will work Burks correctly into what their offense, what he can do within their offense and maybe even grow from there. Yeah. And I, I think everything you're hitting on there is actually, so there's another article that I actually did. I need to republish it because I probably did it too early in the season. Um, there were quite a few, few people that reached out. They really liked it. But what I did is I went and I looked at the routes that the NFL uses the most. And so essentially you've got um, seven different routes that every team uses at least seven and a half percent of the time. And so if you look at it as a league average over the last three years, these routes alone make up 65% of really the route tree for NFL teams. 
And whenever I, I did uh, the analysis, I actually looked at all of these same receivers. Um, I don't have enough data on that to say like how predictive it is yet, because right. I've only got it back to 2014, which means really to the class of 2017 would have been the first one where I could really say, Hey, I could have a full snapshot of their college career. I can now compare that to NFL production. So the sample size is small, but I wanted to mention it because Traylon Burks uh, did, he flashed some real red flags there. Number one, 20% of his targets came at or behind the line of scrimmage, getting the lineup in the backfield a lot, lining up in the slot a lot. He did play outside some, and he actually did well against press man coverage, uh, you know, against Texas A&M. He did it well against Alabama. But even then, it wasn't necessarily pretty. It's like the end product was still coming through with these big plays. But when I was watching the routes develop, I definitely had some concerns. I'm like, wow, he just nearly fell over there. And then the cornerback lost his footing. And then he still ended up catching, you know, a long bomb. So there's a lot of context that goes into play um, with the data, which is which is honestly why I love visiting like with with you, like sitting down talking through the film. Um, so I, I do think that there are red flags um, in Traylon Burks's, uh, you know, profile. The thing I don't know, and, and this would actually be a question to you, um, they also had some really bad quarterback play. So you don't always know like all of the factors, like part of it could have been, you know what, quarterbacks aren't really great. Um, we're going to, we're going to put Traylon in this kind of role where it's just easier to get in the ball in space, right? And we don't have to worry about some of the mistakes from the quarterback. I think that could very well be a part of it. Um, what I liked is even in that role, like he still showed an ability to be explosive. He's the third most explosive. Well, he ties for second, uh, the second most explosive player in the class, graded again by the 15 plus um, reception. Uh, sorry, 15 plus yard receptions. You know, based on the target. So 27 percent, or yeah, 27 percent. Jamison Williams is number one in the class at 29%. And he had two other guys at 27%, Garrett Wilson, as well as Kevin Austin Jr. So he was still able, able to come through and make plays. And a lot of that did come back to rack. Like he's pretty strong after the catch. Um, I think the concerns I would have are similar to yours. I worry that if you just stick him on the outside and just tell him to start winning all the time. Good luck. And to really, <laughs> yeah, and to really do. So where he really came through um, as far as the routes, um, so across these different routes um, that I was talking about, the staple routes for the NFL, if you look at Traylon Burks, he actually he he came in 14th out of 24 guys that I looked at in yards per route run across these staple routes. And so it's crossing routes, go routes, hitch routes, in routes, out routes and slant routes. Those are the main ones I excluded. Screens are technically part of it, but I, I excluded it because of all the different ways that the teams deploy this, the screenplay and some are really high in it and some are really low. So it wasn't necessarily a, a consistent route. And I also think that's more scheme related, right? Versus like the receiver having to win and do something on their own. But he did come, he came through on the go route. Now it was on, it was limited sample. Again, 22 targets on the go. On the end route, he came through. And then on the slant route, he also came through as well. So I feel like to your point, like for me with Traylon Burks, I would love to see him land in a scheme where one, you've got a creative coach that realizes, hey, to get him going, get early use out of him in the league, probably do need to you need to really scheme up some things around the line of scrimmage. Let's not use the overplay, hey, next Debo Samuel, any of that kind of stuff, but use him in a similar way, right? Create some of those looks for him. I think the other thing would be landing on a team where he can work inside more often, play from the slot. And then I think play action, getting him in zone coverages behind linebackers in front of safeties, um, get him some cleaner reliefs, working him inside, use motion, things like that. And then let his raw skills that we do see show up on the film really come through right in the NFL offense. And so I, I, I do believe to your point, 
landing spot probably I'm not going to say probably landing spot matters more for Traylon Burks than any other receiver that I have. Amen. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that is, is when you, and that has to do with, I mean, the Matt, I think Matt Bowen said it best is that he has the tools to, to become a good player against press coverage. But to me, that's saying that you have, um, you have the tools, but you don't have the, you basically don't have the, the draft plans of knowing how to build the house. And, yeah. and, and when you watch him, when, to me, a big tell is that when you put a, a linebacker or defensive back in the break path and off coverage against Traylon Burks, he has no clue of, to do of how to finesse around that other than just try to run the guy over. And here's where the quarterback play gets in to answer your question is that I think it's a great point that the quarterback play probably wasn't great enough that they designed this to kind of get him the ball quickly as possible and easily as possible. So there's, there's the corollary. That's the corollary to the point I'm about to make, which is that at the same time, and both of these can be true probably even is that, Traylon Burks oftentimes hurt his quarterback because of the fact that defenders could put could press him. He 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 would get hung up trying to overpower them, and they would be on a schemed play where, say, it was a read, read to the back, drops back three steps, and the only option really to throw the ball was to Burks over the middle. And with the defender planted in in the break path, Burks didn't get open, and then it forced the quarterback to have to scramble and 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 you know try and create a play that really wasn't by design. And that happened a lot on Burke's film, in addition to maybe overrunning in zone routes and zone coverage, overrunning his open spot towards the adjacent defenders in the, you know, um, in the nearby zone and eliminating his opportunity for a target because he didn't know when to stop. And so there were things like that on his tape that were, um, you know, concerns in terms of what he's going to have to address to become an outside receiver and a more, um, I would say, a more consistent inside receiver against zone. But yeah, the size, the ability to go up and win the ball, he's improved in that area. Um, You know, the footwork is there and the hands are there to become a better um, press release guy. Certainly the physicality is good enough. It's just a matter of him... He's going to have to work at it, know how to work smart and develop in those areas. And if an NFL team, um, you know, relies on him early to do that, he's going to be like Kenny Galladay in New York. I mean, to me, he's Kenny. To me, right now, you want him as Kenny Galladay in Detroit with, you know, Marvin Jones and and Golden Tate on either side, and him being able to run open underneath with, you know, mismatches against defenders who are going to have to play a, a certain coverage or may not have the physical skills to match up with them. So Burks is. Burks obviously stands and he, and he is sliding right now. He's down six spots since really, you know, draft season really got kicked off, you know, yeah. back in February where we really started having, you know, enough industry experts putting out their mock drafts and things like that. So he's slipping and there's a chance that, you know, he, you know, early on, we thought he'd probably be a top 15 pick. And yeah. at this point, like there are rumors that he could slide out of the first. I think that could actually be problematic where I would like to see him land. I think optimal landing spots would be get him to Green Bay where they use a lot of play action. They use a lot of motion, you know, before the play, a lot of they're willing to run some stuff under center, do some different things. I think, I think that, you know, who knows if Aaron Rodgers can trust him. Like that will be the thing he'll have to earn that trust from Aaron Rodgers. 
but I wouldn't mind seeing him, you know, there. I think Buffalo is another place where, you know, he wouldn't right away. And Green Bay is going to have a lot of pressure on him right away with Devontae Adams being gone. And they have some complimentary guys there, but there could be a lot of pressure on his plate. But I think with in Buffalo, um, you've already got Stefan Diggs, who can beat any coverage, right? It doesn't matter. Zone, man, press man, you know, Stefan Diggs can do it all. Let him be more of a secondary guy, um, a little less attention on him. And Buffalo uses a ton of play action as well. Um, and then I think the last place would be Tennessee. You've already got A.J. Brown there, but they've already shown the ability, right, to just use heavy, heavy play action with the with the in-breaking routes, you know, get them into, into situations against zone coverage, against safeties and linebackers, dictating that with formations and things like that. Those would be three spots where, you know, I think there could uh, – Green Bay is probably the most upside, probably also the scariest, because if they ask him to be Devontae Adams right out of the gate, like that's not – obviously, like who can do that? Um, but those will be nice landing spots. And the one nice thing is if he does slide down the board, you have two picks, you know, with Green Bay late in the first round. And then, you know, last resort, I don't know how well the fit would work here, but you would definitely have a good quarterback. The Chiefs have two picks at the end of the first round. So um, you at least know you would be playing with Patrick Mahomes. Um, but I, I, I worry a little more about what they may ask him to do in that scheme versus the other three teams. Yeah, I would – I honestly, I think Green Bay would be a disaster. Um, just, yeah, I really do. I think they need a guy who can play multiple roles, and I think Chris Olave would be like the ideal pick for them. Just a smooth, smart receiver who can yeah. win multiple. Olave shooting up boards. I don't think he's going to make it to Green Bay. I don't think he will yeah. either. But that's Olave was the guy that originally, early on, I was really hoping yeah. would land at Green Bay or yeah. one of these other two teams. So. Yeah, and and. A guy who I think could play the Alave part later that they could get is Khalil Shakir, and we can talk about him in a minute. But one guy that I there's a trio of guys that look like fun to to discuss that I don't get to talk about a lot, um, and and they're a little they're ones a, two are a little higher on your on this board than where I have them, and one is about maybe a little lower, but in the same. But in a in a logical spot, and those three guys are John Mechie, Wandale Robinson, and David Bell. Um, you know the the most interesting one is Mechie because, um, you know, when you look at Mechie, at least from the film perspective, Dwayne, um, you know, I like what he can do from the slot. There's some big playability with him after the catch. Um, he he tracks the ball very well. You know, on vertical plays, where I had issues with him is is something that's correctable, but it, it it's troublesome for players if they don't know how to address it. And that's just not knowing how to use his hands with targets, basically arriving from his shoulders to his waist. Like he, he screws those up so often that I see drops that he just needs to avoid making, you know, that he, he should be able to avoid. And I had, you know, and he dropped down my board for, for that was a big reason why he dropped on my board. I mean, I think he again, he's another guy who can become a contributor if not a starter, and there's some cool things to like about his game, but the consistency at the catch point was troublesome to me. Yeah. And so in the model, just because um there's so much noise and I'm not I I totally get where you're coming from like I I exclude drops in the model because they're just not sticky year over year. So sure. you could have really high drops one year and the next year they're low and then they could be high again. And then you could have zero. Like it, we've really seen it, you know, jump all over the place. So it's, it's tough for me to include it because it does that so much. And it's, and um, a, before you go on, a good point about that too, is that it can be, you know, some to me, I think where, 
what would be great is somehow we can figure out one day a context that shows that it's tied to technique as opposed to tied towards, um, you know, the caliber of the throws. What are the different noise factors are? Because if it's technique, it might be stickier if we could figure that out. That would be my theory that I would posit that we don't have any proof for. But, you know, from just observation, whereas maybe if you have a bad quarterback, say Justin Ross with the guy he had last year, um, you know, if you're getting, if you have more difficult targets to, to deal with, it might be more logical that you're going to have more drops with more difficult targets that he has, you have to try to catch. You know, if you're getting led into contact more or more away from your frame or, or not placed where the route is breaking, things like that. But it's yeah. hard to sort, suss that all out, I imagine, right? No. Yeah, I mean, there are some things that, that you just mentioned that I'm, I've definitely, you know, I have access to data and I've tried looking at some of it. I haven't gotten as far as I want to with it, but like really the quarterback accuracy charting stuff that PFF does, um, you know, where you can, you can have passes one that are accurate within the frame, right? You should just pretty much always catch those. You might have a concentration lap, you know, every once in a while. Um, but then you have really, um, they're inaccurate, but catchable, meaning the quarterback may not have done the absolute best job, but right. It's still the receiver's job at that point to go ahead and catch the ball. Those can lead to contested situations, things like that. And then there's really just the passes that may be uncatchable and the receiver may even get a hand on it, a fingertip on it, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, like we just wouldn't expect a receiver to catch that ball, like at a high rate. So I think there's some opportunities to bake that in there, but where I kind of struggle still, even with this cool data that we have at PFF is just like when the quarterback releases the ball, you know, the receiver can be wide open, like on their break and the quarterback is a tick late. And then all of a sudden, you know, it may be accurate and in the frame, but it's a contested catch every time because the throw's late. So it's technically, it's the, technically the throw is accurate, but it's like, it really yeah. didn't work the play the way the play was supposed to. Baker Mayfield. That, <laughs> yes. And I, I do think there, that's where, um, you know, larger sized, you know, receivers still can have an advantage, right. Versus some of these other guys that are really trying to win with technique, with separation, you know, and they're trying to do it, you know, in timing of the play. And if they can get the ball, they have a quarterback that can deliver that. Like last year, great example. We know how good of a route runner Devonta Smith is, how well he can separate, but Jalen Hurts is not a timing quarterback, right? Like, you know, there's stuff coming and it, it could, and Jalen Hurts actually improved his accuracy by like 7% last year. But when the ball is getting to Devonta Smith, it ends up being contested when it really shouldn't have ever been contested. And contested catches are not Devonta Smith's strong suit. No. You know, he's a slider receiver. And when he's having to take contact, it's problematic. So, I mean, some of that is it's not necessarily in Devonta Smith's skill set. But when you look at how Smith wins, like Jalen Hurts wasn't doing him any favors. So to your point, there's just a lot of nuance with it. I think there are some layers of it we could dig into. It's actually something like we could talk about more too, like with some of the technique stuff but those are some of the things where it's like there's so many layers to it like honestly i've kind of set it on the on the side burner <laughs> yeah it's just like okay i'm going to come back to this at some point but like there's all these other things that i'm trying to dig into right now but i think the points you make like are really great and with mechie you know i had him in tier three in my original screenshot i sent to you he moved into tier two again because draft capital is the number one driver in this model right now right. so this could change a lot come next week um, because, and you say it so greatly, like in the RSP, like I can't remember your exact phrase, but it's basically, look, the higher your draft capital, the more, the more chances you get to screw up yeah. <laughs> and your team doesn't pull you off of the field. So, uh, Mechie right now has moved up to expected draft position of 62. 
Um, so that is actually like, I think that's one of the bigger movers. He's up 20 spots, like since February. Um, yeah. So the biggest mover is like Calvin Austin at 53 picks. You got Sky Moore up to, to he's up 54 picks. So Mechie's right behind those. He's the third, he's moved the third most um, since then. Um, GM, GM's logo, GM's logo scout. I'm, I'm just going to tell do. you, they, they do. do. As much as they, we talk about logo scouting isn't a good thing. This is a great example of that. Cause as much as I, I like some things about John Mechie, um, his game didn't really show up as well as as this draft capital is indicating. Right well, now. even if you just look at the grid that you know I've got up, yeah. like he doesn't really match up. Like if you look at Sky Moore and like because blue is good, red is bad on this. Um, Sky Moore pretty much blue across. Now Pickens had a couple of little you know red things there, but I, it's more I'm I'm giving him an injury uh, discount. And he also, you know, what he did at such a young age, we saw the flash really early on, but like with Mechie, if you look at, it, I mean, his career dominator. So for folks that don't know what career dominator is, that's taking really all of your yardage and your touchdowns over your career as a share of what the team did. So if the team threw for 10,000 yards, you know, and I had 10,000 yards in that time, I'd have a 10%, you know, yardage dominator, but it combines the two things with touchdowns as well. And so like 12%, 20%, I don't mind it as much at big programs because typically they're loaded, right? And so they're yeah. going to spread the ball a little bit more, but that's still pretty low for Mechie. His career yards per route run, 2.22. That's one of the lowest in the class. It's definitely one of the lower. It's one of the lowest guys in the top 10 guys that I have listed here. And then yards per route run is also lower. It's a 2.41. So draft capital is really starting to push him up, um, up the board more than necessarily even what some of the data that I have. Is, is really showing in my model the best score you can get is a four he's a 2.68 so to give you an idea that's not like saying he's awesome it's saying he's above average in the model so give me some thoughts about robinson and david bell anything that you observed that you thought were was fascinating about those guys good or bad man i like david bell and honestly the draft capital is killing him the draft capital is killing him right now in the model he's now projected to, look you'll notice he's the only guy i still have in tier two that's uh, being picked outside of the top 75 picks like it, and what he did so early in his career um, from a production standpoint is really what's keeping him there he's so good that he's still at a 2.60 in my model um, and if you drop down to the next tier you're getting into two fives and two threes so that actually honestly that's a positive thing in my eyes i mean i have to put bell where he goes on the page but it's a positive thing that he was so good so early in his career and he demanded such a large share of his team's offense um, from a dominator standpoint. His best year was 44% of the team's offense and touchdowns. Career is what's really nice, but 28%. You know, he hit a 30% breakout. He hit a 30% dominator at the age of 19.7 uh, years old. At uh, 18.7 years old, he had already hit the 20%. So like, he did everything right out of the gate you know, yeah. with Purdue. So like, there's just, there's a ton of great things going on with David Bell. The only thing dragging him down is the expected draft position. And you know why that's happening is just because the NFL cares too much about 40 times. Yeah. They're so concerned about the stupid 40 time that that's driving David Bell down the board. Yeah. And so there's a chance right now that we don't see him. I really hope he gets picked at least by the third round. Like, yeah. Cause if he goes in the fourth round and fifth round, you know, what happens to a lot of those guys. They just, yep get lost in the shuffle, especially if the coaching staff changes the next year and then the GM doesn't care anymore. It's just, there's, it's just a lot of stuff becomes out of the player's control at that point, yeah. as much as we don't want to ever admit it. But man, I, if his, if he ended up as a 
for some reason, all it takes is one team. Like if all of a sudden, like he they was trade in up in the early first round or second round, if yeah. He, if he became a mid second round pick, like I mean, I can do it right now. Like I'm looking at it. Like if I change his, if I change his pick to like being like 40 overall, like he immediately jumps up all the way. Uh, he jumps all the way to two. Then you're looking at this tier. Yeah, and just call him Big Jarvis because you know he's Jarvis Landry in that respect yeah. in terms of what he can offer a team. And I think and those like, were his concerns. Yeah. Like, not not a very explosive career target. Only a 19%. One of the worst ones in the in the class. So those are the receptions of 15 plus yards or more. Yeah. Uh, his best yards per route run was only a 2.7. Career was a 2.36. So He's not hyper explosive after the catch, but like he's definitely uh, a player that I think you can trust inside or in like a Z role, you know, letting him, you know, work more underneath. And he's really good in contested catch situations. So even though he may not be as explosive, like he's really good at the thing that he does and it shows up really uh, in, in all the production metrics. So, so to me, let's compare and contrast Calvin Austin and Wandale Robinson because okay. um, for me, I have Robinson. I have Austin Robinson and Khalil Pimpleton one, two, and three in a little block because they're almost yeah. they almost look alike as guys who can who might not be able to ride the ride um, in terms of the the size factor and how the NFL has looked at them. But it's interesting to me to look at this and see that Robinson has a lot of the dominators in blue, um, whereas Austin doesn't. But where we're looking at um, you know career yards per route run. And then explosive, explosive target. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where, and Austin to me has more of an outside game that might have a shot of being unlocked. Whereas I look at Wandale Robinson and I think he has some real technical flaws that are hard to correct with tracking the football to be able to, to, to win some of the plays that I think Austin might be able to show. Like if I were a GM, I would look at, I would say, go ahead, let some teams take Wandale Robinson earlier. I'm going to take Austin and see and get him in camp and I know I've got him as a return specialist a gadget guy on some over stuff and then also um as a guy who maybe in, in in the slot and then maybe like during camp and during um preseason I'm gonna match him up outside and get him drawn against top corners and see if he can win like he did at Memphis last year and if he if that we have something there I think I got uh, uh, maybe a small steal um, yeah. but you tell me what, what are you, what have you seen with the difference between these two guys? Yeah. So I actually agree with a lot of what you just said. When I look at Austin, I see a player that's more diverse than Wandell Robinson Robinson. A lot of this stuff, um, you know, he, he worked down the field some, but a lot of this stuff again is around the line of scrimmage. And so you have to be careful when you get into these really high target rates and things like that um, and how they're tied to players. Like we talked about it with Burks, you know, 20% of those receptions coming at or behind the line of scrimmage. Once you move to the NFL, the biggest change is you're not getting as many of those. No. You're going to have to, you're going to have to catch a lot more of those between one and 10 yards down the field. It's a 10% flip, like in the way the targets work in the NFL versus the way they work in college from behind the line of scrimmage versus in that first 10 yards down the field. And so that's where I do worry about Robinson. Like at the end of the day, like, what I would really like to do with this model at some point is just have better inputs from like people like you around the film. Like how do we combine what we're getting with the data, what we're getting with the film? Because I watch it and I see it, but I'm not, I'm not as good as you. I don't have the process that you have. And, and honestly, it's like, I, I trust the numbers more than myself as a film grader. 
right? right? So it's like I need to partner with someone where I can do something like this and we could do some cool stuff. And maybe that's something we could talk about later. But when I look at Wondell Robinson, you know, it's really, you know, just the fact that he's younger um, than Calvin Austin, the model, he's 21.7 years old. As, he'll be 21.7 as a rookie. Calvin Austin will be 23.5. So that immediately dings Austin, moves him down the board. And again, this is just based on looking at players that have come out sure. and performed well early in their NFL careers. Right. This, these are guidelines. This does not mean like it drives me insane when people do stuff like what I'm doing here. I think this is cool and I love doing it, but Anytime someone comes to me that they've got an absolute take on something, I pretty much on it. I hate to say this. I pretty much just dismiss them like because they're just there are not absolutes in this stuff. Like, yeah, it's a filter. It's a filter at the end, not the filter at the beginning. And you're playing probabilities. Yes. What people don't want to admit is that there's another side of the probability, right? Which is, okay, great. The model historically says Wondell Robinson has a 10% better hit rate than a guy like Calvin Austin. But you also have to realize that there, there's also a chance that Calvin Austin could outperform Wondell Robinson. And if he did, like, what would that look like? You yeah. know, and that's why I like, you know, these kind of conversations around where the fit and things may happen. But I do agree that Austin, because he has that downfield presence already, um, you know, 26% um, explosive uh, career explosive target rate versus Wondell Robinson, that was only 19%. And so I think, you know, there, there's just a big difference in the way that you can use the two players. So if you could, and here's what I'll say. It's harder to be able to do the thing that Calvin Austin can already do than the things that than, than the thing that Wondell Robinson can already do. Yeah. Wondell Robinson hasn't shown to be able to really be a vertical threat in the league. And honestly, most guys that haven't shown that, they don't become that. No. But you do see guys pick up in their game and all of a sudden the team uses them a different way. And you're like, wow, he was a deep threat in college. But now he's working underneath. Now he can work, you know, in the shorter game. And I do think there are potentially elements, you know, to, to Calvin Austin's game. Uh, again, the age thing was huge for Austin. Being 23 and a half years, it, it counts a lot, you know, in this model. So ex- expected draft position is first, then production is second, but age is third in this model. Just historically, we've seen the players that are coming out and they're younger. And I do try to go look too, like, you know, did they miss a season? You know, are there things like that that may have pushed their age up? And sometimes those are the cases. Um, but those are the three biggest drivers in the model. Well, the two players who are just screaming at me in this model, I mean, just, <laughs> just like pissing you off screaming or making, or you're like, no, like they're shouting like in a big neon sign value, like potential value are Justin Ross and Khalil Shakir. Like when I see like Justin Ross, first of all, he has the best yards per route run um, of, yeah, you know, your best year, your one. best year. He was number and one. Yeah. And so you could say, well, Trevor Lawrence, that's a, you, you know, that that was the factor. But also that tells you how bad the quarterback play he had at Clemson, both on tape, you know, and probably metrics um, last year and playing with a foot injury. Um and even still, and even with like Clemson having some pretty good receivers during Justin Ross's career, um, has some pretty good numbers up here. And where the numbers aren't so great, they're not that far away from being in the blue, actually, from what I can tell when I look at some of these guys who are in the blue. Um, so yeah, the it, thing that's most concerning with him is his best dominator year being 24%. I, I can actually understand his career being a little bit lower because he didn't get, you know, he didn't play, you know, as much yeah. you know, because he had to battle through some of the injuries. So I kind of discount that a little bit when I look at Ross. But yeah, the things that flash about Ross, 
Um, you know, he's coming out a little bit later because of the injuries. Like he could have come out, but I think he probably would have been someone that came out at age 21, you know, had he not been battling the injuries, but he's 22.7. So that's dinging him a little bit in the model. I think you could make an easy argument that because of the injuries and things he battled, you know, like if I put 21.7 in there, right, which is only the difference of, a, of, of one year, it's going to move him up. But the thing that the, the things that you mentioned, the things that are really huge at 18.7 years old. He had it, you know, he had his 20 percent, you know, he accounted for 20 percent of a Clemson offense that had a lot of really good players on it. Yeah. And so it's not it's not the same as, as saying, hey, you came into some offense that didn't have anyone and you earned 20 percent. Like, honestly, if you're playing with other players that are being drafted and this is something really cool. Kevin Cole does in his model that I need to add to this. But if you are playing with anyone that's gra- gets drafted in those first like 100 picks, I can't remember where Kevin has his cutoff. But if you're playing with other players that get drafted in the first 100 picks that played in, you played with at your school, so that's also looking back to guys that have already come out, it's basically you just double some of these numbers. <laughs> you know, yeah. you kind of you 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 2x the career dominator, you 2x the best dominator. Because look, if you're sharing, Ohio State does this all the time. You know, that's why yeah. you see Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson like in different programs probably are 40% guys because yeah. they've got a split and they have other guys there, right? And they yeah. play with other guys that are already in the NFL that were really good as well. So, I mean, I think you have to account for that. You see this a lot with um, Alabama as well. But the thing with Justin Ross is that career yards per route of 2.99 is the best of all the guys in the class. And his, his best yard per route season blows everyone away. It's what screws the whole scale up. You know, you got guys at the top that are only light blue because Justin Ross is at a 4.98. Like, and it's so far ahead of everyone yeah. else. Like, the next closest one is Christian Watson at a 4.33. Um, so yeah, I, I really like Watson. The thing that's driven him down the board is his draft, um, his draft stock has fallen 32 picks since February. So that's the second most uh, of these higher guys behind only David Bell, who's dropped 41. Yeah. Yeah. Give me Christian Watson and, and Justin Ross all day. Like, I mean, Ross to me or Watson to, you know, Watson played in a West coast offense. And a, a true West Coast offense, which means that he's going to have a better foundation for understanding working with zone coverages and being on the same page with your quarterback and the verbiage of offenses that and concepts that you're going to see more commonly in the NFL, even with the off, NFL going to more spread types of looks. Um, Watson and then has more weight that he can add to his frame. He's already a big dude who can run. He can add another 20 pounds. I'm not 20 pounds, another 8 to 12 pounds and be get to around 220. And that dude has a chance to be a monster of an athlete. Um, and then with Ross, I mean, to me, Ross is the best guy. You can mug J- Justin Ross, and he doesn't even notice what you're doing to him. He just doesn't <laughs> even pay attention to you. He just flicks you off like that and and makes the play. And the fact that he played, to me, that now that as long as the doctor is being genuine, and I have no reason to think he isn't, when the doctor who operated on Ross um, with this neck injury that – um, no football players ever tried to come back to play with. If the doctor said what she did on ESPN's article that Ross has no greater chance of a catastrophic injury playing football than any other football player who steps on the field right now, um, if that's really true, and I have no reason to think it isn't, then then I look at the foot injury that he had this past year since the Georgia game and played all year on his tra- Jones fracture. And, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Dwayne, I asked him about this, uh, who had a biomechanics background and said, all right, 
four, five, six, 40, 31 vertical. Those all meet the thresholds of like that you can play in the NFL. May not be what NFL people like when they look at combine numbers. And honestly, but, the NFL overrates everything they combine do. to do with receivers. They, they do. do it at most positions, but receivers, um, honestly, like if you really, in a good way to weed it out is like compare it to draft capital. Yeah. Um, and so like Kevin Cole actually did a great series on this uh, probably like six weeks ago by each position. Basically the things that the NFL probably overvalues about athleticism and even some of the ones they're probably undervaluing that actually do show um, to have some correlation to future success, even what, even after accounting for draft pick, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of it just really becomes noise. Um, yeah. You know, and you've got to, yeah. That's the thing that I've kind of noted is I always try and tell people that when I grade players and I use incorporate combine data, I have a much lower barrier to entry um, with those metrics and certain well you mentioned it's thresholds you don't want to like you you don't want a guy that runs a five flat obviously right (laughs) but a four but it doesn't matter if he runs a four two if if four four is fast enough or four five is fast enough or even four six is fast enough if he has the skills to play the game you know and but like Ross, but the killer is because the NFL overvalues it, it yeah. pushes these guys down the board, then they don't get the draft capital, then they don't get the benefit of the doubt, and yes. it just becomes this vicious cycle. It does. And Ross, to me, though, the fact that he ran a four, five, six and did all this, I mean, I remember mentioning, I said, well, he had eight weeks to, he had six to eight weeks to train, and most guys were healthy and not immobilized for eight weeks after surgery and had a good 12 to 13 weeks to train to game the system uh, that's the combine. And, you know, and I asked, you know, I asked this guy, our mutual friend about it. And he said, I'm, he goes, there's no way Justin Ross was even healthy competing at the combine. He said he, he'll, when he gets into camp, we'll probably, you know, once he's like in training camp, we'll probably see a healthier Justin Ross. And at that point, I think you're going to hear some team beat writer go quote a, a coach going, he's way more explosive than we thought. You know, Just put him with Trevor Lawrence, and we won't have to worry about it. I would love that. Yes, exactly. So yeah. let let's end with Khalil Shakir. Um, yeah, and then maybe someone you want to point out as well. But like Shakir also kind of sticks out. His you know his he's nineteen point six at his dominator rating there, um, and then he had a you know two point eight inch shabby for his career um, yards per route run, um, and he's neutral. I guess he's got a neutral color with the 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 best year but you know big playability um not bad um yeah 25 percent is is still is still good yeah it's not it's not up there with jameson and some of these other guys but yeah it's still very strong yeah and you know to me this is one of the more versatile receivers he's a guy where the hands issues are a good example of a deontay johnson where like it's more of lapses that he can fix and I would look if I'm going to look at it from just a narrative perspective or a qualitative perspective. It, it is Deontay Johnson was the type of player who had hands issues coming out of school. Um, he had early on success, but he was probably dealing with um, easier opportunities. The next year, he led the league in drops, and then the year after that, he realized that he needed to re- readdress his fundamentals and started doing the old tennis ball catch with the fingertips thing making sure he was drilling the hell out of that and he didn't have a drop until what like week 12 week 13 i think yeah last he got year. the yips a little bit after that but yeah no and again that's the thing i mean with with the uh you know the drops thing i think there's just 
there's a lot of nuance to it. And I honestly yeah. don't And look, when you get guys like this, like Shakir, that's got a best dominator seat, he kind of, it kind of for 46% of his team's <laughs> offense, yeah. I mean, you know, through the air, it's, it's like, um, okay. Like if he really sucked and he couldn't catch a ball, he would never do that. Like the, right. they wouldn't throw him the ball that much. So I think with Shakir, like, yeah, there's some positives. Like, I notice, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of like me. It's like you go to like, look, some of these guys, and that's what happens when you get down to tier two and tier three. If you look at, you know, the tier one guys, you got really strong capital um, and overall, you know, pretty good marks across the board. But then as you get into tier two and tier three, it's really more about highlighting guys that have certain specific strengths that like really make them, you know, that, that make them pop out. And I think you hit on the ones, you know, with yeah. Shakir. And he also, you know, he hit the 20% you know, uh, threshold as far as dominator rating at 19.6 years old. So that's still, that's really young. Um, you know, and he did get to the 30% mark as well at 20.6. So a lot of guys on here never got to both of those marks. So yeah. I think that that's, that's good for, um, Khalil Shakir. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else you want to mention here that just something stuck out to you that I didn't, uh, yeah, the guy that everybody seems to love and they're pushing them up the board and I just don't get it. And even despite me giving him an increased draft capital, like the model still doesn't like him is Alec Pierce. Um, okay. you know, doesn't have a good career dominator, uh, never had a best dominator, uh, never even got to a 30 percenter, uh, yards per route run 2.18 best yards per route season 2.46. And I have people listening and they're like, what does that even mean? That's really low. That's the set. That's the third worst in the class. Uh, his career 2.18 is second worst or well, sorry, fourth worst in the class. You get rid of Kyle Phillips and uh, some of these other crappy guys and just look at like the top, sorry, kind of crappy yeah, guys. I shouldn't say it that way. The top 20, if you look at like the top 22 prospects, like he's in the bottom three of those things. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know, like his, his explosive, you notice this tier four is really, you got a lot of guys that have shown the ability to be explosive, but a lot of the other things are not popping for them. Yeah. Um, and so he fits into that tier, but like, I just feel like the NFL's kind of oversold themselves on Alec Pierce. Not that he can't be good, but like he's climbed, uh, 25 spots yeah. in draft capital. You know, he's now projected to go, you know, in the third, early third round or sorry, second, he's, he's now projected to go just at the end of the second round. Like I, I just, I don't get it. And then when I watch the film of him, it's like, I like him, but I, I don't get overly excited about anything that I saw, you know, from Alec Pierce. Yeah. And I can understand that. So, you know, but maybe the, you did. I, I, I liked him. That. I liked him. And I think that he would be a good fit in an Arthur Smith offense where he could be, or any offense where they can bunch him early on, they can use him tight to the line, he can be a good blocker, and then he can drift out into, into routes on play action against linebackers and safeties and nickel corners, and he's very good at winning at the catch point. That's where he really succeeds is that his technique to track the ball and win in tight coverage in the vertical game is stands out to me. Um, the route running isn't Justin Jefferson-like, but the... The athletic ability is close, um, and I think the routes will get there for him to be good. I don't think he'll be great like Jefferson, but I think he's a he's a solid prospect who I think has potential to become a starter. And I have him in the range of a guy like Christian Watson. But the but I think the the compelling thing that's fascinating is either I it could be a different combination in this, but I'm either wrong about Desmond Ritter, who I just don't think is anywhere worth what he mm -hmm. what he's being rated and that Pierce is covered up a little bit by the the work that Ritter do, did that that I don't know to the life of me why people love him um and 
or it's that Ritter made Pierce look better than than he is, and I just don't. I didn't see that. I thought Pierce. I thought Pierce made Ritter look better, um, and but at the expense. But Ritter was kind of at the expense of Pierce in terms of uh, his play. But um, let's talk running backs and take a look at some of these guys, um, because you know, and with with some time left, we probably have about twenty minutes left with this. Um, but you know, for starters, I mean, it's fascinating to me because there's a lot of blue on this chart, um, which kind of also indicates to me that the data supports that this class has some depth to it. There's some there's some talents in this class. There's just not a lot of opportunities. Um, and, um, you know, right off the bat, like if one, two, and three, it, that's pretty locked. Everyone seems to be pretty lockstep that Hall, Walker, and Spiller are, are guys worth paying attention to. Where it gets fascinating to me is the Rashad White. You know, for me, like Rashad White is a guy who, like Traylon Burks for me, he can, he can contribute give him in the right circumstance and maybe he can develop into being that every down back or a, a lead back. But I feel like that from what I saw where work comes between the tackles, the decision-making is where I have real concerns with him. And that's where, you know, backs there's, I'm, I'm coining it this there good backs run to open leverage. Um, um, backs who struggle in the NFL run to open space. Um, and R- Rashad White, Kyron Williams, those are examples of guys who get to run to open yeah. space in college, but they're running open space rather than running open leverage. And when the leverage is, closes off and they notice it, they try and change their tune and they end up on the ground, you know, and or losing yards trying to avoid a situation where they needed to just take the hard yard basically they're the opposite of brian robinson like he does yes. a nice job like of understanding that like the quickest way that i can understand leverage is i just go watch inside zone plays for like everyone and i just watch them back to back to back to back because it's really not designed to just like because wide zone right immediately you could just be faster than everybody it's like okay i'm out of the outside right and i'm gone i like watching the players and there's different types of inside zone you know you've got yeah. the split inside zone then you've got you know your duo double duo all that kind of stuff but just watching them work the leverage and manipulate the next level, right? Of okay, I'm I'm gonna set up like this to get the linebacker to go one way, but then I'm gonna cut back off of this block, right, and create this space for myself. And I saw flashes of it for Rashad White, but to your point, it wasn't consistent. The big thing, and just to real quick for folks that are listening or are looking, so we talked about receivers a second ago. So the components like of the model for the running backs. Um, age obviously is a, a part of it again. Now weight is, is a much bigger deal for running backs than it is for receivers. Um, expected draft capital is still the number one driver because as Matt yeah. mentions, it correlates to opportunity. And then you got your career yards per game. So that includes um, passing, uh, you know, work in the passing game plus the rushing game. You got a best yards percentage season. Um, then you got a best touchdown percentage. So I split them out a little bit different than the dominator for the receivers. And then you got uh, similar, uh, more of the efficiency stuff. You've got your career explosive rush rate. So instead of 15 yards, these are carries of 10 plus yards or more. And then you have your avoided tackles per attempt. So really just the elusiveness and the 40 yard dash does matter. I don't have it on the screen, but actually the 10 yard split, you know, is also, um, included here. 
And so, yeah, it's Brees Hall, Kenneth Walker, like you mentioned, Isaiah Spiller at the top. But tier one is Brees Hall and Kenneth Walker by themselves. If you are in a fantasy draft, like there's no doubt you're taking Brees Hall because he's already proven the receiving chops and everything else as well. I think Kenneth Walker is the better just pure running back. I, agree. I just watched Kenneth Walker run. He's a better runner than, than Brees Hall, but I don't know if he's going to turn into someone in the receiving game or not. Like, it, Actually, I would love to get your thoughts on that because when I watch how fluid of an athlete is, I just I have trouble thinking that he can't catch a ball. Like he, He's got... Yeah, this I mean, is where this is where the this is where it's hard. This is where it's kind of absent for a lot of folks because, like, I you know I had high marks for receiving for Kennedy Brooks, Jonathan Taylor, and and um, and Leonard Fournette in the past, um, but it was based on low quantity of targets. You know, it was mm-hmm. on quality of targets. And what Walker does, he shows the hand eye coordination to catch football. The routes he runs, he runs well. the The difference between Hall and Walker is that Walker basically is a more refined back. Hall is a slightly more explosive back. Um, and I and I would say, and I know that 40-yard dash is big in, with this model. I, I tend to look more at the 20 and 3 cone um, with those guys. But Hall is, to, to me, Hall has a little bit more of a ceiling and a little bit more of a floor, whereas Walker is a little steadier all around with his game athletically, technically, and conceptually. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like Walker actually, if he does get the receiving side or we happen to find that he can do that and they just didn't use him in that way, like I think Kenneth Walker is the more explosive back and then right. the more elusive back. Like I, I like Brees Hall, but I just, when I watch, like there's just so many things Kenneth Walker, honestly, there's things Kenneth Walker can do that no one else in the class can do. Like right. his ability to, to just kind of set up move after move. Like there's just not even anybody else in the class that can make one guy miss immediately make the next guy miss and then beat an angle to take it all away. Like Brees Hall, it's much more of uh, you know, he doesn't have those same time. He doesn't move in the same way. He still breaks long runs. Right. But he just, it's when I watch Brees Hall's film, it's much more like the blocking worked perfectly and he hit it. And I think it shows up in their career explosive run rate, you know, 14% for Brees Hall versus 17% for Walker. Uh, career avoided tackles per attempt, 33% for Kenneth Walker. That rakes in like the 98th percentile back to 2014 for this now, stuff. So it's it's like way up there. Yeah, now, um, I'll say I, I have some tape to suggest to watch for Hall that kind of shows some some of that make you miss ability that's very creative in, in space. But I agree that overall Walker shows that more often on tape. I, I would agree with that that assessment for sure. Um, yeah, I think somebody, I think it was uh, Thor Nystrom yesterday posted a, a video of uh, Kenneth Walker and he put it to Benny Hill music. <laughs> yeah. It's like a pa 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 Nobody can get their hands on him. Now, sometimes he gets himself into trouble with that. Like he cuts back. Like on a lot of plays, I saw him make cutbacks that he didn't necessarily need to do. And that could turn some NFL coaches off early in his career. So he's going to need to be careful probably with that. Yeah. But yeah, those guys at the top, kind of go to that tier. Sorry, I got us on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail there, but um, Rashad white, you know, the big thing that's pushing him up in the model, um, you know, he was a Juco transfer. He's an older guy. Um, if he wasn't 23.7 years old, honestly, he would be in tier two with Isaiah Spiller in the way that the model works. Right. Um, you know, but he's a late bloomer, but that 134 yard career yards per game, like is pushing him up there. Now you have to be careful because Brees Hall is at 129 and Brees Hall played every year. Yeah. You know, so it's, they're not the same. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, the 129 that Brees Hall has is not the same as Rashad White because Rashad White wasn't playing when he was a freshman. Brees Hall was already doing that as a freshman. 
and, and that's an area where Isaiah Spiller, you know, also, you know, um, you know, not as impressive as the first two guys, but 103 yards per game. And he was doing that starting off very early in his career. He was involved in the A&M backfield. So, but he's definitely slipped you know, yeah. in his, in his uh, draft capital expectations. But so the way I name these tiers to help people like listening or watching. So that first tier is high draft capital. And when I say high draft capital, that means they're probably going to be drafted in the early to mid second round by then. Okay. Um, and right now, that's what they're expected. Brees Hall's expected to go off the board by pick 36, Kenneth Walker by, kick for, by pick 45. So they're by far the top two. Isaiah Spiller's at pick 72. So he's in tier two. That's, that's good draft capital, a good production profile. But that, that top tier is you know even better draft capital and what I would consider to be more along of a, not an elite production profile, so not like a Jonathan Taylor or a Christian McCaffrey, but the level below that, a great production profile for Brees Hall and for Kenneth Walker. But then this next tier, Rashad White, James Cook, Zamir White, Brian Robinson Jr., Damian Pierce, they're all expected to get the draft capital. Um, but we have limited sample sizes on all of them. So Rashad White pops up blue in a lot of these things, but really it's based on one year. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of similar to these other guys that I've got a lot, you know, they actually were playing for three years at their schools, sharing time. For example, James Cook, Zemir White, you, when you're in Georgia, like they just recruit well, you're going to yeah. share time. So it's yeah. hard. The, the career yards per game, the best, uh, their, their best season percentage of team yards, those things, they show up as red. Right. Yeah. You know, in this chart, but NFL teams and some of it is probably what you mentioned. It's logo buying. Right. They're logo yeah. shopping. This is a logo shopping tier for sure with 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 Cook, Samir White, Brian Robinson, Damian Pierce. But they're all expected to have draft capital and they do show flashes of different things, you know, that you see in their game. And I think this is honestly the tier where for me it was the most important. Like I really watched all of these guys thoroughly um, on film because I don't think the data tells the complete story and by any means, because they had to share so much time with other really talented players, um, in their programs. And I would note that there are other players that really stand out to me based on this yards, career yards per game that are either overrated or underrated based on this a little bit, at least from my own perspective from the film, which is Tyler Algier. Um, I think he's, I think he's just a bit of an overrated player, but he's been so productive and he pretty much had a stranglehold on that offense. Um, you know, in terms of getting the ball um, at that position that I think it drives him up a little bit more, even if I have some issues with him. Um, Jerome but Ford. That, that is to your point why he's in the tier below. Um, yeah. So that's solid producers who should be drafted. So, I mean, basically yeah. they had production. They're going to get drafted. But some of the under, underlying traits don't just really, you know, necessarily yeah. pop off the screen but, for you. And, and Algier... And, and the NFL is basically echoing what you're saying because look at the expected draft capital on all well, these guys. Well, I'm going to go. Before, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm actually going to go a bit further on this and say Tyler Algier is the the scouts' desire to say he's very productive. I don't know how. I don't really like him, but he's really productive. And if I don't give him a fourth round grade, um, then it might look bad because I'm going to have to make a real stance. This is that. This is that guy who gets a who has to the manager who gives his employee a three on an evaluation because he's afraid to give the guy a two or a one and get him fired. Uh, I think Tyler Algier is a special teamer, but that's my own, that's my own take. But you know, I, in contrast, a guy like Jerome Ford who played in Alabama and then 
at first, Cincinnati. you know, now at Cincinnati. And then you look at guys like Kevin Harris, who split time, Kennedy Brooks, who had Ramondre Stevenson um, and a few, and Trey Sermon, and, you know, a, a few other guys, Eric Gray, that he's always contending with. And the fact that he's still barely in the blue is a, and then you look at the explosive rush and the, and some of the other things with him, he's a compelling guy. Um, I would, you know, so those are guys that are Keontae Ingram, who had B. John Robinson to contend with two years ago, um, is an example of a guy who's kind of in that area. So it's it's fascinating to see the differences with that particular metric with with some of these players. Who else? I mean, who who stood out to you that you know in any way that you you want to talk about with this this class? Yeah, and just really quick for the folks listening, so that tier four, solid producers who should yeah. be drafted. When I say should be drafted, like we're talking pick 169, 167, 175, 174. So typically, if you're mocking in that range, you're going to get drafted, right? right? There's probably not a chance that you're going to go undrafted. Then you got the next tier um, with, and Kennedy Brooks is really climbing up. I actually need to move him into tier four um, because he has jumped uh, – he actually jumped from not even being having expected draft capital a week ago uh, to now he's at 163. So he really belongs in the tier above. But what I loved about him, and you already hit on it, um, you know, the career explosive rush rate of 21% was the highest in the class. Career avoided tackles per attempt, 31%, which was third behind Kenneth Walker and then behind uh, Jerry on Ely, who's really a totally different kind of back, right? right. Ely's really more the small scat back, not facing a lot of heavy boxes, not getting carries on early down work. So I don't really consider those things to be, you know, they're not the same. That's not even right. apples to apples. Kennedy Brooks, you know, you're really comparing to a guy more like Kenneth, Kenneth Walker. So I've spent a lot of time watching Kennedy Brooks and I don't, I'll be honest. Um, I don't know if it's the 40 time. I don't know what it is. The small hands, like his hands are under eight inches, which is like, super 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 small you know teams get weirded out by weird stuff but it's really nice to see that his draft capital is actually climbing his 10 yard split was a 1.54 at 209 pounds like that's really good Brees hall was 1.54 at 217 pounds like to give you an idea kenneth walker's the best uh, 10 yard split in the class at a 1.49 and i like 10 yard split and even kevin cole's proven this is more valuable than the 40 because look most of the damage you're going to do as a running back is what are you going to do in that first 10 yards yep. right you know once you get to the next level there's angles and things yeah it'd be nice to have the long speed but how many plays a year really come down to that long speed it's really about what you can do in that first 10 15 20 yards so kennedy brooks for me really checks a lot of the different boxes and to your point if you consider who he's played with that have been drafted into the league um, to see that he still ended up with 93 yards per game over his career. That's really strong. 34% um, of the team's offense um, in his best season. And then, you know, yeah, great touchdown rate wasn't as high, you know, 30%. But touchdowns can be a bit fluky. So they actually, that's the smallest thing actually in the model. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's not accounting for a ton of uh, value in the way that, that the metrics are being uh, or counting or adding up, right, to basically give you a score um, in the way that they're weighted. But yeah, Kennedy Brooks is the one. Like that's the big one that pops out to me. That I'm like, wow. If 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 we get a surprise and all of a sudden he goes um, in the third round, even like he's going to move way up. He's going to yeah, move he's, way up this list because he's blue almost all yeah. the way across the board, as you can see. Um, he's older, but he also again we will see this sometimes. Guys that are coming out that are older that played with a lot of really other good competition, but what. What they're told by their agent is, look, you don't have enough good film. You're not 
you're not yep. going to be a high enough pick. And so there are different things that factor into why these guys yeah. stay in college longer. So um, he is definitely um, the one for me. Um, the one other like that I would ask you, um, I know we're, we're probably up against time here, but just, you know, your your thoughts really on um, Damian Pierce. Like, so Damian Pierce is a guy that didn't get a lot of reps in college for whatever reason. And it's funny when I, I watched him last night uh, and I watched everything. I watched his inside zone, his outside zone, watched him run power. Like he was really good as a pass blocker. Like that stuck out to me, like immediately just watching him play, but he's just very inconsistent. Like one play I'd be like, wow, like that looked really good. And then the next play I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like what's going on? But that 10 yard split of 1.51. So look, his 40 doesn't look good. It's a four five, nine. It looks like it's bad. But that first 10 yards, he's a 1.51 at 218 pounds, only going to be 22 and a half years old in his rookie season. So, like, he was the one I was most excited to ask you about, like, and, and what your thoughts are on Pierce, given the limited sample. You know, we don't we don't have a ton of film to go off of, but I know you've watched probably all of it. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I mean, this is why also I like looking at Excel, you know, at 20 shuttle and three cone drills because they also give you – you know, that acceleration through the hole when you head through a straight line. I want to see you not only get through the hole in the first 10 yards, I want to see you um, threaten safeties. And So you had a really fun this year, year this year, Matt, trying to track down 20 and three cone. I yeah. left it out, honestly, because we didn't have it for so many guys. Exactly. So, but <laughs> what's season. nice is it's okay because I, you know, I look at the tape and the tape tells me a lot too. I mean, you know, it can be a hard Sometimes you can have some false positives or false negatives with that. But, I mean, I can tell you, I, I, I wrote somebody about two months before the combine. I said, I'm just saving this as a receipt um, that Kyron Williams is gonna is not going to perform well at the combine. Like, that's not, you know, and they were giving away 4.38s. It felt like, you know, we know that's not true. But it was like, it seemed like everybody was getting a 4.3 or a four, low 4.4. Four. Um, so, you know, looking at, at Pierce, what stuck out to me was his ability to plant and transition from an east-west direction to a north-south direction within a step. When you can do that, when you can make that fluid transition downhill from a lateral approach path and make that one cut downhill like that at the edge of the tackle box or outside the tackle box, that tells me you have explosion and good footwork, and Damian Pierce has that. Um, he certainly can be a good tackle breaker. Um, I think that in the right system, he could be a lead back. He could definitely, he gives me a lot of Marion Barber vibes in terms of some of the things that he can do because oh, he's a one. very good pass he's catcher. A violent runner. <laughs> he is a violent runner, that's for sure. Um, he needs to make sure that he doesn't keep running when his helmet's off. But, you know, hey, that's a <laughs> that's another story for FSU one day. But uh, he uh, he certainly, do I think he's the next Marshawn Lynch? No, I'm, I'm not with Doug Farrar on that one. But, but, you know, listen, that's okay. He is a, I think he is an underrated back who can be a committee contributor. I think where he's rated here makes sense. I think that that's probably... You know, I may have him a little lower in terms of my overall score, but I think that he's one of those guys that, again, you know, my my score is high enough where that if he gets the draft capital and he gets the opportunity, you're, he's going to move up in my in my post draft ranking. So I liked Pierce, um, Kennedy Brooks. Let me just I just want to end this and say, listen, you know, or start um, finish what we were about to talk about with him and what and put an end point on Brooks is that. If there was a if I could go to Vegas and put a prop bet on who's 
the 2022 running back who could have a Terrell Davis-like surprising career, I would put my money on Kennedy Brooks. He is the most technically sound running back I have seen um, in this class. Um, his ability to make the small movements, those little micro movements that Jay Moyer and I talk about a lot, um, to avoid full-on contact and his contact balance are is really a strength of his game. And I know DeMarco Murray. I remember interviewing him at the Senior Bowl when he was a prospect. And when DeMarco Murray makes the comments, about, he's coaching Oklahoma backs, he's like, listen, we couldn't get him off the field. We had better athletes. We couldn't get him off the field. Um, he just he just kept getting yards. He kept doing it. The thing is, is that Kennedy Brooks understands how to read boxes pre-snap, understand where the l- rushing lanes are likely to be, and make his cutback decisions pre-snap um, based on late pre-snap, early post-snap information. And you don't see a lot of backs at this level do that. Even as a junior, he was doing that. And... You know, he was he was one of my top five backs last year. If he if I had if he had come out, so I'm a big fan of his. Keontae Ingram's interesting to me because I'm a big fan of his. I love. There's a lot of Chris Ivory, Kareem Hunt kind of style of running to him. He's more along that Marshawn Lynch scale to me than Damian Pierce is. Um, but you know, he. And I like that he can catch. His block is not great, but he he's a very versatile runner. He's very low, you know, relative to the other backs on this one. Um, and but this is probably where his draft capital is going to be. I mean, I had no issues with that. But it is fascinating to 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 look at that that guy. Yeah. He, he checks know. some boxes, like with the weight, um, you know, his uh, you know, two hundred twenty one pounds, the one point five three ten yard split was very good in wide zone was not as good um, in some of the other run concepts, but like this last year are players that have shown an ability to make explosive plays, but they just didn't take over, completely take over a backfield. But, but yeah. again, to your point, like there are going to be a lot of reasons for that. It could be level of competition, all those sort of things. But yeah, he hits that 17% mark on a career explosive uh, rush rate. I did notice with him, uh, like, like I mentioned, really most of it came in wide zone. Like he was really good in that. So if he could land in a scheme like that, I think that that would be nice. But like, but that's the tier. Ex- ex- yeah. Explosive playmakers who didn't ultimately take over their backfields in college. And so it just, but we'll see what happens with the draft capital. All of a sudden you see Keontae Ingram, you know, land in a scheme that we know runs wide zone and he gets a fifth round pick. Like he's a guy I'll be stashing in dynasty leagues. Who's, who stands out to you that we didn't talk about that just for whatever reason? Um, okay. Let me look back at it here. Um, well, I mean, I hate to go back like just, you know, to the top, but, um, you know, Isaiah Spiller, like is just one for me, like it's, um, you know, he had, he was productive early in his career. You know, he's only going to, he'll be the youngest back in his rookie season, 21.1 years old. He's got the weight, he's got all these things. Um, but then he came out, he ran slow. Um, you know, his, his explosive rush rate though, doesn't suggest that he's slow, right? 16%, you know, yeah. is one of the better marks on the page. You can see here, not as good on the avoided tackles pro attempt, but like if I would have given, if I was also to show in here, like his best season, as far as his avoided tackles per attempt, like last year, I want to say he got close to the 30% mark, uh, as a junior. Um, you know, but when I watch him, it's like, I'm not like, I don't not like it. But I'm also like, I, it's like, okay, it seems nice, but it's like I struggle to find anything special, you know, with his game. 
And then with his draft capital starting to sink, you know, I, I know he can catch passes. Like that's one thing yeah. I definitely saw with him. And I like that. And obviously for fantasy, if, especially if you're playing a PPR league, like, look, you got a young back that's shown they're explosive and they can catch passes. Like you really don't have to say much more than that from fantasy standpoint, but we just love your thoughts on what you see um, with Spiller, you know, on the film and, and you know where you have it. He grew on me. And I had him number three overall on my board as well, and he was at the bottom of my first tier. Um, so essentially, tier two. But if you, it's almost it looks identical to this, um, other than I just have him at the bottom of the first tier. The the things that I like about him: excellent footwork, very refined footwork in terms of understanding how to use different footwork styles that are efficient. Um, you know, unlike a Kenyon Drake, who I've always talked about as the model, the guy who will you know, who will take four yards to make a cut that he could have done in one step. Um, you know, very Adrian Peterson-like in that respect, but couldn't get away with it like Peterson. Spiller's the type of guy that understands how to be able to make the efficient movement. And that's where I think a lot of people mess up as they, they look at the Anthony McFarlands and the Kenyon Drakes of the world and see the, the dynamic movement and don't understand the, the context and the context and scope of when to be efficient and how to do that. Like they need to watch Frank Gore tape. Um, and then, you, you know, he also has some issues with, with, um, with, with plays where he tries to bounce them outside on gap plays that he has a lane that he should set up and follow that pulling block and really manipulate that. And as Jay Moyer had mentioned when he saw one of my um, clips of that, said, man, I would have, you know, anybody in, in my high school league would have benched a kid for some of the, some of the decisions that he made on plays like that. Um, and that's true, but he's a very good outside zone runner. He's probably going to play wide zone. So you don't have to worry about him running these gap plays like that. And he's probably not going to keep making mistakes like that on gap plays. He is a student of the game. I think he'll continue learning. Um, the biggest thing I'd like to see him improve from a power standpoint is that there are times in the open field that he forgets that he needs to have his hips aligned with his pads in the same direction that he's moving because sometimes he'll try and make a move while he's trying to or he's like caught in mid thought on how to like when to lower the pads on a defender who's much smaller than him and he gets driven backwards when he has a running start because his hips aren't aligned downhill when he's trying to drop his pads on a guy um so he has to there's some minor things that he has to work on um but you know to me if like the if the Bills decide to go wide zone, you know, and they couldn't get Hall or Walker and they wanted to take a chance on a guy like Spiller, I'd be happy with that. They, I, yeah, I wouldn't they've, have had, a, they've had him for a visit. So. Yeah. There, um, there's been several teams that have had Spiller for a visit, whether it's yeah. virtual or a private visit since the combine. So, yeah, yeah I think there's definitely interest in him. Um, I, I, you know, there was even a, a piece, you know, Doug Kai from PFF put out earlier yeah. this week where he just, interviewed a lot of different, you know, executives, yeah. you know, across the NFL, like who are the guys that, you know, maybe, um, you know, I don't want to call it fantasy Twitter because that's not what yeah. he cares about, but that's what I immediately think of. But basically the masses are probably lower on or they've started to slide down boards that really the NFL teams are not right. Yeah. And they're still, you know, they still like them. And Isaiah Spiller was one of the first names that came up is that the teams are still com They're still, I think they're still comfortable, you know, with him. So I, I think he's probably still going to end up, Maybe as a late second. If not, I think he ends up being a third round pick. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, without a doubt, this was great. You know, wish we had more time. Um, but, you know, we, we take what we can get and what we can squeeze in. But you can find Dwayne McFarlane at Pro Football Focus. And, of course, his Twitter handle Dwayne, at Dwayne McFarlane. Um, you can find me at Matt Waldman. Um, again, you know, 
you know, take a look at that uh, GoFundMe if you have an opportunity. And of course, the pro rookie scouting portfolio is available for download. You can get it at mattwaldman.com. And I do have the pre-draft, post-draft package, as well as the projections, dynasty rankings package. They are separate things. You don't get the book with both of them. You get the you get the books with the twenty one ninety five product. You get the dynasty rankings and projections um, with the twenty four ninety five product. Together, you get a really nice, well rounded fantasy um, product for you. If you're a draft nick, then you know the rookie and just focus on rookie drafts as well as your redraft looks at you know wanting to have a longer term look at players. I'd say get the pre draft post draft package. That's probably going to be your good way to go. Um, and uh, thanks again for listening. Hope you guys have a great weekend and uh, see you next week.